from your daily local and Two Moms Media and Warren PA, this is Smoke, the Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. This afternoon, I had a quick conversation with Jeff Walters, who was a Pennsylvania State Trooper at the time Damien went missing. Damien's Aunt Dana called Jeff when she first found out that Damien was missing to get some context and clarity as she moved forward with getting Damien's case open alongside Janine at the City of Warren PD. Dana told me that at the beginning of this project, just about a year ago. In January, Detective Anthony Comenti gave me Jeff's number as I had questions for him that he also said I should talk to Jeff about. I finally did reach out to Jeff just today, Monday, July 11th, 2022. That's after Anzietta and I were talking about Warren County Crime Stoppers history, and she also had something she thought Jeff might remember. I hesitated to reach out to Jeff all this time for one reason. I didn't expect him to tell me much. As a former state trooper in Warren, I expected the same response I get from most people who worked on this case in one way or another and don't anymore. I don't remember a lot. And that's basically what Jeff had to tell me, and that's fine. As I said in a previous episode, what I had for breakfast yesterday is more than a mystery to me at this point. I don't expect 20 years to be kind to memories, especially not memories like these, which are based in less fact than theory anyhow. Anzietta remembered that she'd worked with Jeff on getting some malfunction with the Crime Stoppers line worked out in the past and suggested I reach out. Jeff couldn't remember that happening, but said it could be that it was around the time he was leaving the board in 2012. Either way, as I sit here crafting the last of 10 full episodes, I find myself thinking hard on a question Jeff asked me as we finish talking. Are you getting close? Shit, man. Are we getting close? There is no standard unit of measurement in a case like Damien's for close. Whether we're close or not to a resolution, I can't begin to say, because I have no idea who's going to reach out with the next text or phone call or email that will send the investigation in a new direction, at least for a minute. I can tell you that the progress I think we've made has come every time that has happened, so I think whether we're close or not, we're closer than we were when we started. I mean, I know Brian and I are. I don't know where the case stands with law enforcement and whether anything has come to them since the podcast launched that would be investigatively significant. I sincerely hope so, but I don't know. What I do know is that we're making progress in tangible ways on things that matter to Damien's case and any potential resolution it may see one day. Probably still a long time from now, but one day. I found out that the Warren County Crime Stoppers number hasn't been ringing since around the winter of 2020. Last Friday, I sat down with Warren County Crime Stoppers leadership, past and present, as well as DA Rob Green and Sheriff Brian Sable, and I'm happy to say that work was underway by Friday afternoon to restore the number to working order. What that will look like and how it will happen remains to be seen, but here's what we know. The Warren County Crime Stoppers Board hasn't met since before COVID, and the organization basically hasn't done anything as an organization since then either. As to why, DA Rob Green and Principal Officer Gary Barnes say that the pandemic caused enough confusion in everyone's lives to allow the work of Crime Stoppers to stop. 
We know that service for the number is provided by Verizon, and Gary said he's been unsuccessful in resolving the issue with the line with Verizon customer support. The organization has been getting bills, he said, and he's been paying them, but as far as number of calls or outcomes, there's no statistics known on our end, or, said Green and Barnes, really on theirs either for the past few years. I'm glad to know that things are moving forward, and I'm also happy to report that a public meeting for folks interested in potentially taking a seat on the Crime Stoppers board or otherwise assisting in the organization's efforts will be held in the next few months. But Brian and I have been over and over this, and we just don't see how an organization that bases its existence on a confidential tip line could neglect to make sure that the line is running. At some point between the winter of 2020 and now, someone should have asked how many calls the line had taken, or more realistically, why it had taken none, which has to be the number of calls since that time. It feels to me, and to Brian, and I think to Damien's family like this line was not a priority for that period of time, and I'm really glad that this podcast has brought the problem to light for the people in charge of running Crime Stoppers. We hope the board will be motivated to maintain the line and staff it and follow up on the tips it receives with as much motivation as they showed Friday afternoon. Past board secretary Jetta Bishop was there and came through with some really great Crime Stoppers history stories. We're looking forward to seeing what the organization develops into in the coming weeks and months. At this point, with the ball rolling, I'm only going to be updating the podcast with Crime Stoppers information once the line is restored and can once again be called by you, the people who've so vociferously reached out to me this past year. That does not mean that coverage for the organization will stop. In fact, I'll be handing the subject over to Brian for your Daily Local, and he'll be covering it as what it is, which is news. Community news. And I'll be helping him as much as I can. For now, though, we're hoping to hear from leadership that the line is working soon, like within a couple weeks. And if that happens, and even if it doesn't, we'll let you know on social media. I was curious going into Friday's meeting whether the line and rewards in general were actually a good way to go about getting new information. So I asked the group about that. Here's what they said. I was pulling this information from my head during the meeting, and I said I thought Crime Stoppers USA started in Nevada. It was actually New Mexico, so I just want to point that out ahead of the clip. Yeah, we're kind of the benefit of this. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll say right now, Rob, we'll we'll happily attend and, and do all that stuff that you were saying, you know, Bob, with the top ten and crime of the week and all that stuff. Cover meetings. Yeah, and... yeah, it's a mutually beneficial, right? Exactly. Well, and that's originally what Crime Stoppers was. Am I correct yes. in that Crime Stoppers USA? Anyways, it, it was Nevada, I believe, and it was a detective who went to the local media because he was struggling with a case to get information, and so they were able to sort of attack that issue by going through the media. I believe that's the genesis of, like, the National Crime Stoppers, so. Hmm. I don't know. That's I believe so, well, yeah. so many things are going to get a reward. Sure, well, and that was my other question. come up and, and say what they saw, what they know. Yeah. And, and that helps. Yeah, absolutely. I was curious, actually, if there's any research been done on whether um, 
things like rewards and the ability to tip anonymously are efficacious in terms of just peer-reviewed research if anything's been done, but I haven't had a chance to look, so. Um, whether it's beneficial to law enforcement, I mean? Yeah, beneficial to the resolution of cases, really. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah? I mean, yes. mom will turn in their son for 200. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's scary, I mean, but it's, seriously. Really? The people that okay. wear, so this is a good resource to have. If it were to be fixed, it would not be a waste of time to fix this line. It's not, okay. Yes, and be able to offer that, especially with the drug task force, mm -hmm. when they get information, we would have them call uh, the Crime Stoppers to get a number sure. and work with them. It, it, it's extremely beneficial. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by sending the information out to the to the jurisdiction that it belongs to, where the crime was committed, that sort of cuts down on. Because I know as well as anyone now, I mean, you get a million tips a month, and you got to sort through the red herrings, and you got to sort through garbage. But being able to just send the information jurisdictionally, then then the responsibility is on the jurisdiction in question, right, to vet that information and follow up on it. Yeah. So I don't it, think we've got a lot of um, calls that weren't good calls. Okay. Most, I, I think most of them were pretty substantial that pretty good. led to something. Sure. It yeah. might not have been a direct lead. So one thing about Warren County is that our county fair is pretty much an enormous deal. And I won't go into my opinions on the fair, but I know that we have some international listeners who were confused by the term steer dump. And since the question came up during the meeting, what is a steer dump? There was no way I wouldn't include that for you guys. The question actually was, where does your funding come from? But the answer to that question was donations and the steer dump. By way of a quizzical expression, the person asking the original question pretty much asked another, what the heck is that? And this really wonderful explanation sort of developed, so I wanted to give it to you. This isn't just about the steer dump, though. There's a lot to learn here about how Warren County Crime Stoppers has funded itself in the past, most of it coming from prior secretary Jada Bishop. So it's worth a listen, even without the steer dump conversation. I personally loudly endorse the hell out of events like steer dumps and look forward to endorsing Warren County Crime Stoppers steer dump next year if that's the direction the board seeks to go. Donations and um, mostly the steer dump at the fair. We would have a steer dump at the fair where we would grid off a large and then a steer is brought into the arena wherever he happens to defecate that would fall into a square measured and it's like a, a pool so everyone has a square that you paid $20 for a square or whatever the cost used to be. So there's 100 squares today. Um, so if he poops in this square, that square is 54, we look on the score sheet, or a ticket sheet, number 54 is holding that ticket. He would win, we'll just say $1,000, and we made 1000 doing that, you know, type thing. And I don't remember the numbers of money or anything, but that's how, that was the basis of that. And um, as consolation prizes and everything, she would hit the streets and get many donations of whatever, a bottle of wine from here, a gift certificate from here, and those would be drawn um, as well, so you had quite a, an opportunity to, we'll just say, get your ticket money back, yeah. But that was a big fundraiser for us, as Rob said, that that was our major, I'm, only that I know of, on what little I've been involved, so. In case the steer runs into someone or something. Don't know. So we're not doing the steer this year. Nope. That's all. I don't, no. I don't like that either. That's good. <laughs> you make a lot of money on that. 
Well, yeah. that's pretty good. That's, yeah. that's what we use for the rewards. I know. I mean, that's pretty amazing. You could make that kind of money. And believe it or not, it's amazing. Once I was down here last year, pretty every day. How many people? The crowd. They're not having a suit. What the heck? Like, yeah. Well, why aren't you having it then? Just again, not having anyone to man it, maintain it, organize it, go to all oh, the businesses okay. and get all that. Okay. Um, we didn't even know. I mean, when Steer got constipated. <laughs> when the insurance came due for it, it was like they didn't even know if what was going to even happen with the fair this year. As far as they weren't going to have, they weren't going to have rides. They weren't going to have like. So we were like. We didn't know if it was worth paying the insurance. Actually, people came from quite a distance for the stereo. I was amazed in, in the uh, the tent on the benches where some of these people were from. I mean, a lot of them were at camps, different places around the camps, and they would come to the fair for the stereo. Mm -hmm. we, we would sell tickets at a booth there on the yeah. inside second building there, and, mm -hmm. and we sold a lot of tickets. And yeah. a lot of people, they did look forward to the stereo, and I was yeah. asked, yeah, it was I mean, 50 times last year, oh, no steer dump like So that was kind of an icon, a piece of the fair. It's we'll just leave kind it of a, it's too bad you can't do it then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It, because it was the money maker for the Crime Stoppers. Like we said, there are places in the county that contribute. They might send us a $25 check or a $50 check. The fire department sometimes would do that. Yeah. Uh, they would support Crime Stoppers with a donation. That we would use for the rewards, and uh, but the actual steer dump was quite a draw. And when I first heard of it, I thought, "What is it?" <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I found out when I was a reporter because John was like, "You need to go call." I'm like, "The the steer what now?" Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "No, this is the, really literally a steer," and I'm like, "This is the best." I thought it was the best thing ever. I thought it was fabulous. Yeah. I would go every every year. Yes, and for.
So they kind of figured out where their number was. Because <laughs> yeah. you got a grid. I mean, it was like a, like a football pool grid. Yeah. And like, whatever, you know, you bought a ticket and, and you got that number and all that. But, you know, some numbers, like some people always wanted the ones right near the gate where it come out. <laughs> other ones wanted in the middle. Like, it wasn't quite the thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's so funny. when I was selling tickets, somebody, you know, they wanted a certain number. I said, I'm sorry, that one's not. Well, I, that's my number. <laughs> <laughs> they always took that number yeah. and they were upset. These are the same folks as you buy. But, um, and sometimes the steer will come out and it'll slowly walk around and sometimes it runs all over the place and everybody's screaming and yelling, you know. <laughs> come over here, come over here, you're near your box, you know. Yeah. Come this way, come this way. And my spurs get out of here, you have to go by their box. Yeah. It is, it's quite a to-do. Yeah, it, it's... Um, and then, what, you set up your grandstand. Yeah, so you know, only us country people would understand <laughs> watching a steer run around waiting for it to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I would tell everybody to show up, honestly. I think it's a great thing. Do any of everyone's email and name? So basically, it was determined at the end of Friday's meeting that Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. will continue to run, holding informational meetings in the public for potential new members, with Gary Barnes serving as interim president. The goal is to generate a robust new membership base, so if you're interested in this podcast, you might love doing some community service as a board member or helping out with the group's fundraising efforts in the future. I don't know what any of that will look like, but just keep your eyes open on YDL in the coming weeks for more information. We're excited to bring you this news here and on YDL going forward. We look forward to the reinvention of Warren County Crime Stoppers because it is a resource. I specifically asked. Literally, aliens landed at the state hospital. You know what I mean? So that does occur, but that is still an authored number. So at the end of the year, we'll just say y'all um, could bring and present to the board that 211 right. numbers were taken this year. Mm -hmm. okay. So we would know that, that that phone was answered, 211, and there was at least communication with somebody right. that warranted that number. Because again, it, like everything else, robocalls and everything else. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if it is a human being that is willing to talk for long enough that you can get some kind of information, a number is taken. So, What was the average over the years? Do you know, like the average over the years, has it waned, the amount of people calling and utilizing that number? Or has it... Um... I would say, I mean, I would say it's declined over the years. I mean, yeah. Not a whole lot of average either. I don't people know about the number. I mean, there's no... Public, right? Yeah. How do you know the number? Besides the old billboard at Sheffield High School, that blew over. Yeah. And in the in the hundred old whirly cups that still have Crime Stoppers label number on it, but yeah. yeah. Um, it used to be in the newspaper. Um, they would just have a little Crime Stoppers number. Um, when we printed the top ten. We would always put it in there as well. That would be, would you say, keep that? Because that was a good avenue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't want to dime your neighbor out, but through Crime Stoppers, you're 171. Mm -hmm. yeah. We'll never ask you who you are. Come pick your checkup at the DA's office. Uh, you know, when you ring the buzzer and say you're 171, there's an envelope 171. Mm -hmm. um, so that was that was always used for any kind of wanted or top 10 or anything. It was always published in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Again, to open that conduit and remind people that yeah. you can stay anonymous. Do you have any idea what, um, I was kind of hoping Pete would be here, first of all, so I can apologize to him. Um, and secondly, uh, just to find out what might have motivated that. It's an extra large reward for Damien, and there's really, 
it was uncommon at that time because there's no way to really prove that a crime, is, a crime has been committed. Right now, all we have is a missing person and no physical evidence. So it was odd for them to offer a reward on that to begin with and then to offer 2000 as opposed to one. Is there any, um, does anybody have any idea what might have motivated that? Uh, it was in 2011, so it was what? I, like I was going to say, because it's a murder, but we don't know it's a murder. Right, right. right. I mean, it could be Hawaii on the beach. <laughs> my my only guess, and it's a guess because I wasn't involved in 2011, but yes. would be it's a hometown heartfelt case one way or another. Right. And Warren wants to know because it's one of Warren's people, right. um, one of Warren's citizens, one of Warren's neighbors, brothers, cousins, sisters. So I would just say as a small community, that was a big, small community, so that was a big deal. Yeah. In Chicago, that happens, we'll say, 10 times a day, but here it did mean something. That would be my only guess. Yeah, yeah. If I remember right, I think I think his mom came to some meetings. Okay. If, if, I don't know if you were, it might have been before yeah, you joined. She came to at least one that I was at. So yeah, yeah, and I think she kind of presented some stuff and, okay. and asked for help. And, it was so we, just not knowing. She's, you know, it's just hard for yeah. the family not to know where he's at. Yeah. Right. If he's out in the woods, laying, if somebody comes across something, yeah. they would report it and it could be investigated. I think it was more of just trying to give them some closure. Something. Sure. So keep up with Crime Stoppers coverage going forward on Your Daily Local. But if you're wondering whether you should even attend the upcoming public meeting, I say yes. Yes, you probably should. If you're interested at all and just want to learn more about how Crime Stoppers seeks to act within the community on community problems, you should plan to attend that meeting. But I'm a big fan of people attending meetings where they live anyhow. I always took for granted how easy it is to get involved, even just as a spectator in local government, because I did it daily as my job. It was my job to listen to the commissioners talk about liquid fuels, which was actually pretty interesting, believe it or not. And I wouldn't have believed it until I lived it. Bananas. Or, you know, just check out your paper's local news briefs and see what organizations are meeting. You'd be amazed at the ways you can get involved without having to do a whole lot. Or if you're looking for something to take up some time and you're in a place to lend a hand, there are plenty of organizations aching for more intense help. Pick a cause and put some time in on it. That shit is good for your soul. So let's do a quick mid-roll, and we'll finally catch up with Frank, the second major suspect in the court of public opinion, on Damien's disappearance. Do you have a question or a comment about this case or our coverage of it? Visit our Anchor site and click the message button to leave it for us in a voice recording. We may use your recording on an upcoming Q&A episode or other places throughout upcoming episodes. Do it. Peer pressure. Remember that two subjects showed up as the most likely people to have had something to do with Damien's disappearance at the beginning for a lot of people, as well as over the course of many years. I went through James as much as I could. The other was a man named Frank. Frank was arrested on February 4th, 2016 for running a corrupt organization in which he traded rent for labor in his contracting business, food stamps, favors, or distribution of drugs throughout the county. He was sentenced to a total of 7 to 15 years on a total of six charges. 
Rumors about Frank abound in Warren County and are some of the most colorful. Frank is said to have had Damien killed over drug debt in some of those rumors. In other, Frank allegedly enticed Damien to his place with a promise of drugs for sale. And when Damien got there, Frank hit him a little too hard with a sneak attack. Intending only to knock him out, the rumor goes, Frank then had to do something with Damien. At that point, rumors include a wood chipper and a swamp in Chandler's Valley or Akeley or Bear Lake, entombment in a wall or abandonment using concrete or burial in the Allegheny National Forest. The wood chipper story actually loomed the largest for me as one that I'd heard from an allegedly firsthand source that I actually trust a whole hell of a lot. She said she'd been to the city garage one day to pick up recycling bins, which were distributed by the city or out of that garage, at least at the time. In the garage, this source told me years and years ago now, she saw the wood chipper. She saw the wood chipper covered with a tarp and tagged with the name Geiger. And this always sounded insane to me, but most rumors to do with Damien do on their surface. Many of the initial tips I got after taking the podcast public had to do with Frank and some version of a wood chipper, a blow to the back of the head meant to stun, not to kill, and a big problem to clean up afterwards. Frank is currently incarcerated at SCI Huntington, and I reached out to him using the DOC's inmate email system on March 30th of this year. I kept it short and sweet, which is weird for me, but I said, hey, I'm this chick doing this thing about Damien Sharp. Why, Frank, do you think that rumors about your involvement persist. He hit me up a few days later on April 2nd. Stacy, Frank told me, I think you must be very confused or just prefer to perpetuate the lies that have spread through Warren for years. First off, there has never been one shred of evidence remotely tying me in any form to his disappearance. And then, said Frank, you should be asking why they held James's wood chipper for 20 years. Hold up. James's wood chipper? So I said at the beginning of the show that these stories are like folklore. They twist and wind, and eventually, as they're told and retold, added to, subtracted from, pieces are forgot or embellished along the way, they do start to run together. What matters here is the wood chipper. What an image, right? Your gut sank to your toenails as your brain conjured up an image of that wood chipper in that context when I said it. Huh. I know. Strong images are the nuts and bolts of strong stories that people remember. Elements. People known as characters. Places often with crazy ass names like Devil's Elbow. Or objects like wood chippers. This brings us directly to the other thing about this case the contracting world. So a lot of people like doctors and lawyers from Pittsburgh or New Jersey love Warren County. They love Warren County for the same reasons that Dave Sherman described as the county's former tourism guy. It's quiet. It's clean. You can see stars at night. You can live so far from a neighbor. You only see them when you pass them on the road in or out. And it's wonderful. Trust me. I too loathe everyone. This place is great for us, but all those fancy pants doctors and lawyers, they can afford to hire an entire team of individuals. The entire team that it takes to build a spanking new structure on the perfect, perfect spot of untouched creekside land, you utter 
utter bastards. Okay. So to build a house, who do you call? A contractor, right? Wrong. You call about 17 contractors, all for different shit. You call one guy to dig a big hole in that beautiful spot you're absolutely ruining for me right now. Ruining, dude. Then you call another one, a concrete guy, to come pour your foundation. And you call a guy to build the skeleton of your house and another guy to dig a cesspit in the yard. You filthy animal. And by the time you're done, you even have a guy come out and cut down and chip up some of the trees you didn't like that much. Because you're the onceler. It's a Lorax reference. Relax. Normie. Look, all these guys, they grew up together. They all live in the same town they grew up in or one very much like it. And they've been here a minute. They work the same damn jobs together constantly. Because if they don't, then they're competing against one another for jobs. And that brings its own can of worms along with it. So to think that equipment, vehicles, tools, and services aren't traded and bartered on the regular is just a ridiculous thought. Why the wood chipper stories tend to go with the Frank stories and the public narrative, I don't know, but I found it fascinating, you guys. Fascinating that Frank would say James is wood chipper to me because other than the police, no one else had ever, ever suggested to me a connection between James and a wood chipper at all. But there is one. Because you remember when I said James moved from Prospect Street to Russell Street between Damien going missing and his aggravated assault outside Freddy's bar? He moved in with his girlfriend in half of a duplex inhabited on the other side by James's sister and her boyfriend, Bill. Bill was a tree guy at one time. At that time, actually. So I'll be real honest with you. I haven't reached out to Bill yet, mainly because I haven't had time, which is a great thing and a terrible thing. And also the reason I'm taking a seasonal break. It's to do all these things I have to come at you and say, I didn't have time to do that yet, about. And I'm going into that break with a ton of new energy and resources behind me, including journals and timelines from Damien's aunt, another close friend named Derek, who's agreed to speak with me for the podcast, and a handful of new tips that fill in missing details of old tips. But here I am, finishing up this season, telling you what Frank told me, only to tell you that within three sentences, the story had circled right back around to James. And that's a point I want to highlight. In chapter three, Detective Comenti talked about the circular nature of an investigation like this. And I understand the point he's making, but I would qualify it by one degree. I'd call the circles that make up this case concentric. Every time I come back to one, I see something new. Like I'm climbing a spiral staircase. I may come around and around to the same spot each time, but it always looks a little different. New details, a different shade, connections that didn't make sense before. And that's what makes this case maddening. Because sometimes you come back to the same circles and you find that you've not gained anything. So you put the thoughts and ideas away for a little bit wander a little farther up the staircase and observe a different element from a little higher. Sometimes you're just sitting on one stair for what feels like forever because you're exhausted. But always, always, I come back to the same elements with a fresh perspective eventually. I can't shut people out when they call me about wood chippers to get there, though. It's frustrating a lot of the time. Then somebody does something like Frank did. He says, 
James's wood chipper. And I realized the size of this town and the way we're all pretty interconnected when you get right down to it means that there are relationships we don't even know about, probably between all these people and more. Anyhow, that's just a thing I came up with while I was rereading Frank's emails tonight. He went on to say in that first email that I should reach out to a couple of names and then ask me whether I was planning to do a legit investigation or just participate in a witch hunt to perpetuate the lies he says police told about him. Among those lies, Frank says that the police illegally paid a CI to set me up so they could use it for an excuse to search my homes, found raccoon bones and identified them as human remains, took up the floor in my kitchen because there was human blood on it that turned out to be animal blood, or how they dug in my other basement for this case, but never logged a search warrant for anything searched, so if they actually did find anything, it was invalid for court. Frank says that he offered to take a polygraph test, but that this offer was rejected by police because, quote, it would spoil the lies that they have spread and told his family and the community in general. And Frank offered me some advice at the end of his response to my request for comment. Contact me if you have valid questions. Do an honest investigation and do not repeat the excuses and lies they hope you will fall for. So I haven't been back to the Warren PD since episode four, mainly because I've had to devote my time to other sources for the middle of the show. I'd love to get back there and see a few tapes. And they're aware of that interest. And as we head into the seasonal break, I really hope that that can happen. We'll find out in the coming weeks. When I do get back there, these will be among the things I'll seek comment for, and I'll update you on the answers I get to them. I haven't honestly prioritized Frank investigatively, mainly because as far as ties to Damien, he doesn't claim any, and I can't find any really. That being said, Frank does own property directly adjacent to the house that Damien grew up in on Taft Place on Warren's West Side, so they almost certainly would have known who one another was. And if they were both running in drug circles, at some point their paths may have crossed, but it doesn't sound like they hung out together and none of Damien's friends claim that they did. At the first meeting with the police last fall, we sat around for nearly two hours discussing what I knew, what they knew and were willing to tell me, and we discussed both Frank and James in as great of detail as I could get. I got told to play nice, and someone else got told to play nice. By someone younger than me who I had to listen to, which... As a mom, but also the type of kid who is smoking weed in the lower parking lot of the high school, I mean, competing impulses in that moment, honestly. It was a fun time. But we did get to the wood chipper, and I can confirm for you that a wood chipper was forensically tested. The results were inconclusive, I was told. I can tell you that Frank's houses were searched copiously. There are stories about it in the local newspaper. Code enforcement officer Keith Hinton went into at least one of them and reported on it to the city's redevelopment authority in October of 2016, according to an October 21st TO article from that year. Asked about the house's structural soundness, Hinton told the board that one of them on Pennsylvania Avenue East, quote, really seems to be structurally sound, but it's really chopped up inside, he added, indicating that the city of Warren Police Department went with him to see if there was any stolen property in there. But there is no way to do an inventory. It's so full of stuff, it's unbelievable. When I wrote back to Frank, I told him what I actually thought. That there were way more compelling people to look at in this case than Frank. For me, the core rumor regarding Frank just doesn't cut it for me. And it goes like this. 
Damien went to one of Frank's houses that night to get some drugs. In the rumors, it's harder drugs like cocaine. Again, Brian and I have not come up with anything to say that Damien was looking to buy coke that night, but he was known to have partaken in it in the past. It doesn't track as likely with people like Dave, who knew Damien as a teenager and young adult, or with people like his brother Stephen, who knew him all his life. Either way, when Damien got to Frank's, the rumor goes, Frank had a younger family member hit Damien over the head with anything from a chunk of pipe to a hammer to a 2 by 4 Whichever version you hear ends up like this, though, almost every time. Frank didn't mean to kill him. They were just going to knock Damien out and rip him off. And that's where the Frank rumors split. And some, he takes Damien to the middle of a swamp and drops him in. Although the swamp has been drained in the past for other reasons, according to people who shared space with Frank in jail over the years, Frank says they never got anywhere near where he left Damien in there. In some versions of this version of the rumor, Frank put Damien inside of an old refrigerator, covered it with chains before dropping it into the swamp. In other versions, Frank had Damien entombed in a basement floor or sometimes a wall next to a steel door in the basement of one of the parties. I've heard rumors of people who claim to have poured that concrete and say there was something wrong with it, that they were told not to ask questions, just to pour the concrete and be done. Those people did not confirm that story with me, but who knows? At this point, who knows? Finally, in a third version, Frank and this younger family member spent a couple of days acquiring equipment and positioned a wood chipper into either a swamp in Chandler's Valley or a running body of water in the same location. I'll be really honest with you, the wood chipper thing feels so unlikely to me just because it's completely over the top and also evidence would be scattered all over the place. What didn't fall into the water would have fallen all around it. Whether it was a stagnant or a flowing body of water, that evidence over the course of 20 years in a relatively well-populated area like Chandler's Valley, where people love to fish, would have turned up. I just don't see how bone fragments don't show up somewhere in a rural neighborhood. I'll grant you, it's rural, but it's a neighborhood nonetheless. I'm sorry. It's too much for me, man. It could totally, totally be true, but whether it belonged to James or to Bill or to Frank or to someone else for my money, wood chipper, out of the question. Feel free to try and change my mind. It's open, as is my phone line still, and I just need more than what that theory offers me at this current time to get there. What's interesting to me about the wood chipper story, maybe the only thing that really makes me pause and say, oh, but wait is the fact that all three of those men, Frank, James, and Bill, were associated with it. Very few people appeared to be aware of that over the course of the past year. The other swamp I mentioned was the Tamarack Swamp, and that was drained at one point, with the middle of the swamp not being part of the area affected by that action. Honestly, Brian and I would love, love to get someone with the ability to look around down in any of the local swamps and in the reservoir, to come up and do their thing in Tamarack, Akeley, Chandler's Valley, right around Devil's Elbow. Just because, as I've said before, even if it's not true, it matters that we rule it out. Especially, especially if it's not true, it matters that we rule it out. Clarity through elimination can't be a bad thing, right? 
Either way, Frank responded back to me that same day with a number of rumors he heard, but they all focus on a location in Grand Valley, an area of the county well outside the city and getting close on the edge of the county itself, comparatively. Grand Valley was a new location to me when I heard it. This party, Frank told me, went down on the weekend in question and involved a number of people Frank named me, who I'll be reaching out to in this upcoming seasonal break period. Most of them I've already reached out to and not heard back, but that's pretty par for the course, so the plan is to just hit them up again, see if anything's come up for any of them that they'd be willing to talk about since we launched the podcast. This conversation with Frank, after all, was just over a month before we launched, and I was working on writing and scripting the first three episodes at that time, so again, this is a gig really best conducted with a crew of writers and audio wizards, but we're an independent podcast. We're still kicking its ass, so I'm not ashamed. There are as many motives as there are names in that email, but among them are that Damien got after James's sister and got laid out for that, that he was attacked and robbed for drugs or money, much like people say happened with Frank. One story about that party is that Damien got into a fight with someone there and, quote, fell in the fire and was then killed and buried, end quote. That's actually, you guys, a brand new rumor to me. No one has told me that story but Frank. So that's interesting, and I'll be getting there this break. And Frank ended that email by telling me, I believe most people know. Them guys all knew me. We did have a ring of various types of criminals, and it was thought I was a de facto leader, but I was at my house all that weekend on a coke binge with no less than three to four people at any one time. And to be honest, I would never have permitted someone to be killed over money, especially such a small amount. If I would have been present, it would have been bad for business on more than one level. I brought up the issue of gossip with Frank in my first email and asked whether he thought the rumors about him might have been a compelling way to keep people in line. For Frank, he says... The rumor that he was the person who killed Damien was the opposite of helpful. It was interesting to me that Frank mentioned that Damien had a relatively small amount of money on him. I didn't mention any specific amount of money or whether Damien had a little or a lot on him that night. But it's possible Frank's heard the same rumors we all have. I mean, shit. He told me as much in his last response to my messages. Frank writes of the people who ran or worked with Frank. The ones people say he kept in line with rumors of having killed Damien. But there are several associated with him who could be involved, but Frank said, quote, If they did something on their own, that's on them. They all ran to me to make peace for them with others because I grew up in Warren, and I knew everyone that broke the law or sold drugs or was basically involved in anything, so that's how my name got tossed in the bag all the time. Because at one time or another, I've been involved in all sorts of stupid and crazy shit I am amazed daily that I'm still alive myself, but I have refrained from hurting anyone, and like I have said, bring a lie detection test in, I will pass it, but I will only answer questions involving this investigation, so go check them names and get back to me. So Frank, I don't know if you can listen in prison or not, I don't know what the rules are, but uh, if you get wind of this, trust I'm going to be checking out those names. I'm going to be reaching out to all of them again and again until someone either gets really ticked off at me or tells me to stop or answer some of my questions. And to wrap this episode up, uh, I want to go back to what Jeff Walters said. And at this point, I'm going to go um, off script to finish up for you guys to go back to what 
Jeff Walters asked me earlier this afternoon, are you getting close? Shit. I honestly have no idea, but I know that it wasn't until about the last episode when I really felt something crack socially. Um, that was when Anziat was able to meet with me. That was when a bunch of people reached out with brand new names, brand new stories. The family has reached out with tips that they've gotten themselves individually. Um, and it, I guess if it took me 10 episodes to raise the heat enough for that to start happening, then it was worth every minute. And I can't wait to do season two. I really want to focus on as much of what Ansietta wrote in her journals as I can in season two, um, because she sent me just a page today. And honestly, it is fascinating to me. She writes about Rick Hernan and an author who wrote about another um, local murder, the Kathy Wilson murder. I believe it was in the 80s, possibly in the late 70s. But this guy wrote this book that basically said that political moves were made to help Hernan in that investigation. And that's why it was bungled. I don't know anything about that investigation, but you best believe I'm, I'm going to be on Amazon as soon as I get paid going to find that book. Um, it is fascinating to me that there's a blow by blow account in Anzietta's journals of daily interactions, daily things that happen and not just things that happen, but her subjective, her subjective experience of it. I mean, I am Anzietta. If you're listening, I'm not going to share, uh, I'm not going to read your diary to everyone, but, um, what you're willing to share with me is, probably the most valuable resource I've gotten so far in this show because and maybe it's I'm biased I know I'm biased I'm a writer but um I don't think there is any better way than a daily journal from someone at a time in a place that you're trying to learn about the daily lived experience of this is something that cannot be recreated and I'm sure no one would want it to be recreated but in order to understand it that journal of those journals I'm sure there are stacks and stacks of them over the course of 20 years and I'm sure a lot of them are going to be hard for you to read Anzietta I'm sure you're not going to share even the majority of it with me um but please know that I very much appreciate it and I would love to bring any of it in that you're comfortable with because I think Putting the family's experience first and foremost is super valuable, especially going into season two. I think a lot of family members were kind of holding off, waiting to see what I would do, waiting to see what this was actually going to be like. Um, I can describe a podcast to people, but if they're not podcast listeners, it's like Greek. So um, I'm really hopeful going into the seasonal break. It's going to last until about Christmas. You'll start seeing promotional material, trailers, teasers, actual audio out for you sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you guys. Um, I'm going to be spending all of that time just investigating and then hopefully pre-writing some episodes now that I kind of know where we're at. It was... <laughs> I can't believe I've done 10 episodes. I can't believe I did 10 episodes. Um, just sitting down to the first script with that little blinky bastard cursor looking at it knowing I have to write 10 hours of content so many panic attacks so if you know you know I've reached out to you in the middle of numerous of them and I apologize profusely and at other times I've just 
hidden in my room and laid in my bed. Um, I appreciate everyone's help. I cannot wait to dig into the names that Frank gave me. I cannot wait to do some right to know requests. There's a lot of information that I want to know. I'm going to be reaching back out to the ANF. And if I can't get any of those um, answers, I'll be filing right to know requests. Um, I'm not stopping until I get the answers that I want from this season that I don't have yet. That's my focus going into the next few months. So you guys, you've supported me. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Keep up with us on social media. We're looking for ways to um, get into the community, maybe some face-to-face events. If anybody has any interest in that kind of stuff, let me know. Otherwise, stay posted on Facebook mainly. That's where the majority of updates go, just because that's where the majority of people seem to be hitting us up. This is it, you guys. Um, I'm going to leave you until Christmas. All of us together, you guys, let's find him. Let's find Damien. Spoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacey Gross. Executive producers are Stacey Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacey Gross. Check out the show notes for links to our website, sources we've used, and a full transcript of each episode. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening, rate, and review. It'll help us out a ton.